Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, August 2nd, we are studying Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. In today's text, Solomon recognizes vanity in this life under the sun as he recalls the way that he has spent his time searching out all matters of wisdom. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor James Sharp. Pastor Sharp serves through the LCMS Office of International Mission as pastor, teacher, and missionary in Montevideo, Uruguay. Pastor Sharp, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your mission work there, Pastor Sharp. How are things going in Montevideo? Well, it's cold. It's really cold right now. Uh, <laughs> See, that's not and... what I expected to hear. <laughs> break, break down and turn the heat on this uh, this afternoon. It's uh, it's in the low 40s, and they just don't build wow. the houses here like we do back, back home against the, the cold. So it's pretty chilly, uh, but uh, we're, we're busy. We're in the middle of our school year. Our school year runs March through December. Uh, my wife teaches at our Lutheran school here, and a lot of our ministry uh, kind of works around the school, but my kids are on Christmas, or not Christmas break, winter break uh, this week. And so uh, my work is as a church planter, and so I'm attending various missions that we have around the Montevideo area based out of our uh, main church, our sister church here in Montevideo. And uh, we'll be out on Saturday at one of our missions in Town called Costa de Oro and uh, planted churches, raising up local leaders. I also serve as the area facilitator for Southern South America, so I maintain relationships with some of our sister churches and oversee our mission in Peru as well. Fantastic. Well, God be praised for the work that's being done there in Uruguay, and we'll continue to keep you and other missionaries in our prayers that the Word of God would go forth into all the world. Now, Pastor Sharp, having said how important mission work is, today we get to talk about Ecclesiastes, and Solomon says everything's vanity. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is one of those books in Scripture. It's a different kind of literature. It's wisdom literature, but even within wisdom literature has a different feel. We're only—this is only the second text now in the series on Ecclesiastes. Talk to us a little bit about the book as a whole, some of the themes that we've already seen that we're going to continue and encounter, any introductory material for this text today. Well, it's really a, a meditation on what's good about humanity and human work. And Solomon, uh, the author, uh, traditionally described as the author, comes to the conclusion that really nothing, there's nothing that we do apart from God that has any lasting value. Uh, so you're right that it's different than a lot of wisdom literature. A lot of wisdom literature is just kind of aphorisms and and almost kind of like a Ben Franklin's, you know, poor Richard Almanac sort of thing. Like, you know, uh, early to bed, early to rise makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise kind of thing. You know, it's it's wisdom. It's human wisdom. There's nothing wrong with human wisdom. 
uh, and it does help us uh, to to live our lives. But it's not perfect. It's not divine. And what Solomon discovers uh, through the course of Ecclesiastes is that uh, all of his wisdom uh, that he acquired is of no value to him, and that not only wisdom, uh, but uh, other things as you go through. I don't want to steal all your other guests' thunder as they, they go through the book of Ecclesiastes, but uh, comes to nothing as well. And, and so it's not a very hopeful book in, in the sense of putting our hope in, in ourselves and our abilities and our capacities. But I think that in the grand scheme of Scripture, and as we see the, the Word of God, it, it puts us in our place. And by putting us in our place, that helps us to, to put God first in our lives. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that last comment, that it puts us in our place, thereby keeping God in His place, is, is really important as we think about, you know, what is this book doing here in the mm-hmm. Bible? Because it is, like, wait a second— vanity, meaningless, futility, all these different ways of translating that, that same Hebrew word. Why, why does God want me to know that? I think what you said is, is key. It's, it's putting me in my place so I know what God's place is in my life. And then that does actually give meaning to my life and makes it not in vain. So, Pastor Sharp, let's take a look at the text for today. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind." What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's our text for today. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So, Pastor Sharp, we met the preacher in the last text, in the first verse of the book. Here we find out he's been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, How does this enlighten us a little bit further as to the author of the book? Well, in the beginning, it says that he's the son of David, but of course we know that the son of David could mean any of the descendants of David that were kings of Israel, but he specifically says he's the king the son of David, and now he says the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And this could be, some scholars think that it's it's a, just a way of talking, that it's not necessarily a, a presentation of, of the fact, but traditionally this has been interpreted to mean the king of Israel in Jerusalem, who's the son of David, is Solomon, and only Solomon, because after Solomon, the kingdom is split into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south ruled from Jerusalem. So the only king, son of David, who ruled over Israel and Jerusalem was Solomon. And that corresponds to the traditional understanding that it is indeed Solomon who was the author of this text. Uh, so, and, and he says he has been king, or I have been king, the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And uh, this can give you a sense that maybe it means that he's not king anymore. Like I've been a butcher, I've been a janitor, I've been lots of things, I've been a teacher, and now I'm a pastor. Like, we're talking about something that was in the past, but it's also a way of saying that 
I've I've done that for a long time, and I'm still that way, especially in Hebrew, as a, a way of of saying that. So I think that uh, what the author is trying to say is that I've been a king in Jerusalem for a long time, which also identifies him as Solomon because Solomon reigned for 40 years in Jerusalem. Right. We talked a little bit about this in the first text, that this seems to be Solomon later in life. And, uh-huh. and that would fit here with what you're saying, that he's... And, and I mean, you know, when we go through what we're talking about today, he has had these experiences throughout his life. And now later in his life, toward the end of his reign, he's reflecting on that. And as this as this preacher or the one who gathers people together, that word koheleth as, as the idea uh-huh. of assembling, he's now sharing that wisdom or his reflections on his life later on, probably. Well, so that puts us in the 950 to 930 BC is what is suggested by the, the Lutheran Study Bible. In that time period, it seems King Solomon is reflecting on this. And and in today's text especially, he reflects on the matter of his wisdom. So he, he talks about that in the first part of 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Take us into just that first sentence, what Solomon's saying about how he's looked for wisdom. I, I like the old way that they used to translate this. I set my heart upon mm. uh, this, you know, that, that it, it's a way of saying that it's careful, that it's deliberate, that it's with intention that he decided to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And talking about applying his heart, in our modern use, when we think about heart, we think about it, even though we know that's not true, but we think about it as the seat of our emotions. You know, if you do something from the heart, it means you're doing it maybe even contrary to what you might think, like the heart and the head are, are in opposition to one another sometimes. But yeah, the ancients, the Hebrews especially, thought of the heart as the seat of reason and intelligence. And so when he says, I apply my heart, to seek and to search out by wisdom. What he's saying is, I, I did this rationally, I did this empirically, I did this almost scientifically, right? A, a, a very methodical, systematic search by the wisdom that he already had of all that is done under heaven. Uh, and that's what he uh, is set to do, to understand everything uh, of the human experience, basically. Uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, talking about under heaven, obviously Solomon can't, by his reason, understand the things of God. We can only understand those when God reveals them to us. So he's set to understand and and search out by his wisdom all that is done under heaven, that is human activity. Hmm. Now, I mean, with Solomon, and we think about wisdom, he's the one that early in his reign, he asked God for wisdom very famously. So there's maybe a bit of irony that, that that's what we're going to see at, at play here. Sure. In 1 Kings 3, you know, he the God says, ask me for anything you want, and he asks for wisdom to rule his people you know, in wisdom. And God grants that to him because he didn't ask for riches or, or any of the other things that, that people with maybe a more worldly mindset might normally ask for you know if the genie gives you your your three wishes you know what are you going to ask for and god gave him this wisdom but he starts from that part point that you know he he kind of decides well i have this wisdom that god has given me god has made me wise and i'm going to use this wisdom and this understanding in order to max out my abilities, I guess, uh, of, of being wise. And so it, it is very, really, I truly ironic that 
that Solomon, who is the wisest of all people, right, who has this divinely given gift of wisdom, comes to understand through applying that wisdom to try to understand all sorts of human wisdom, that wisdom in itself is meaningless. Human wisdom is meaningless. Hmm. So that's where he, he starts to go in the second part of verse 13. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is he saying? What has he found out? Well, I, I really like the way some commentators talk about this, is that business, not in the sense of, you know, conducting uh, trade or, you know, uh, opening your, your shop and you know, selling pottery or something like that, but business in the sense of almost like busyness, like the, the things that mm-hmm. occupy us uh, from a day-to-day basis, kind of, kind of like the daily grind. And yeah. it, it's, a, it's a grind that God has given to the children of man, that is to all people, to the children of Adam, it literally says, so everyone, uh, to be busy with this, the, the day after day, the toil uh, of, of daily work. It's just meaningless busy work. You know, I was a teacher uh, for, for a long time. I was your wife's teacher. I like to remind her from time to time. And, uh, you know, I was guilty of the same thing. You know, uh, here's a worksheet, get to work. And, you know, it it wasn't really of the most educational value whatsoever. You know, it was just killing time. We had 20 minutes to go before Christmas break or something like that. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of busy work that we do. I, I think a lot of people reflect on this, that even our, the work that we do uh, on day-to-day in our vocations, it doesn't always seem like everything is really working towards a goal, right? It's just trying to get through the day. And Solomon here says that this is an unhappy business, that, that it's it's not a source of joy for, for most people on most days. It's just something to do. It's something they have to get through. And that it's it's almost unfortunate that that God has allowed this to be given to, to men, uh, that, that this is how we live now. But it makes sense because it's consistent with what God says in the curse of sin, that, uh, you know, by the sweat of your brow, uh, you will have your bread. And so it, it is, uh, it's a, really the product of sin. And, and Solomon doesn't always point that out clearly, but we can see it all over this book that he's talking about the sinful condition in which the world exists now. You know, God did not want to make us unhappy. We really made ourselves unhappy by our sin, right? God did not want our, our work and our, our daily life to be one of unhappy busyness or toil, but by our sin, we turned it into that. And uh, that, is, that is the lot of the, the human race now because of sin. So talk more about the role of God in this, where it says, you know, Solomon even says, God has given this unhappy busyness to the children of men, almost could sound like a complaint. And I suppose if you left it there, then you might become angry at God and even just walk away from him. But talk about the role of God in this and what he intends by this unhappy busyness that that we have. Uh, Luther says it beautifully, God has given to men this trouble or affliction not to destroy us, but to call us back from our foolish wisdom and from trusting in ourselves and our schemes to teach us that wisdom amounts to nothing so that we will depend instead on God and his wisdom. So it, it's it's really a way of showing us that our own wisdom, our own abilities fail 
and that we should depend on God instead. It's a way of, of the law really working in our hearts to work repentance. Mm. But uh, but apart from that realization, then it does just become this unhappy busyness, and it 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 seems absolute vanity, which is the, kind of the point right. that Solomon's really getting at. Right. Yeah, Luther said something about that too. That's I, I think really great. You know, if Luther and and Solomon could go toe to toe for who had a lower <laughs> view of human nature, I guess. But you know, he says the vanity <laughs> or misery is increased when a man sees that all the strivings of the men that have gone before him have been frustrated, and their efforts useless, and that they've tormented themselves in vain. And yet, man does not learn from this. The flesh is so foolish, the reason so blind that it will not be corrected by any example. So that that's our natural state, you know, that, that we see uh, everyone else go before us and make these same mistakes, uh, trust in their own wisdom, trust in their own abilities, and it comes to nothing in the end. But we think, maybe this time, maybe I can do it. You know, I can do something different. I can make it work. I can make something that will really truly last. And the, the truth is that all of this is vanity. Hmm. I mean, I I said this jokingly earlier before we were recording and a little bit during our conversation about being a missionary and this, you know, people who've come before you. And I, I don't know the history of mission work in South America or Uruguay, but is there a sense in which you, you experience that sometimes? There, there are some things that they've done here and they've done all over the world where we really thought we were building something sustainable and, and it wasn't, and we've lost it or it's all come to naught. I mean, there are church buildings all over the world that were built by LCMS and then our mission partners that are no longer churches. Uh, you know, there were plenty of those in Baltimore before I left the United States too yeah. that were no longer being used as churches. But it, it's, I think that uh, this is a call for us to not trust in our abilities and our wisdom and our genius and our great ideas, you know, those those are the things that don't last. So the word of God lasts, and where the word of God is planted, it will bear fruit. And so I, I think that this isn't, as a missionary, uh, to me, this is not uh, something that brings me to despair. You know, oh, all sure. this work that I've put in, and it's not going to come to anything. It's rather something that leads me to despair in my abilities and my powers yes. and and my education whatever you might say you know and to trust in the word of god because it's only the word of god that's going to have a lasting effect it's all truly only the word of god and what the word of god bears that will last and it will last forever and and that's really what we're trying to bring to the people of Uruguay or to the people of uganda or the people of germany or wherever we have missionaries all over the world and, and of course back in the united states as well yeah, absolutely. And I think, what, well, again, to go back to the way I think you said it toward the beginning, that this puts us in our place so mm -hmm. that we recognize our wisdom doesn't avail so that we would put our trust in the wisdom of, of God and His Word. That's especially as, as missionaries, as pastors. You know, there was a, in my previous call in, in Texas, we were, we were working to, to start a church in a place where a church had closed. And, you know, who, who do you think you are to do something like that? It wasn't about who who I thought I was or any of the the people involved, pay lay or pastor, but rather this you know we know that if it's just us, it's bound to fail. But with the word of God, that's I mean He says His word does the work, and so that's where right. we're, we're putting our hope. Uh, realistically, of course, you know I mean, and and Solomon had his moments where where things failed, obviously, 
Uh, but again, this book, it puts us in our place so that we would put God and keep God in his place. Right. So take us into to verse 14. We, we get a repeat of that phrase that is one of Solomon's favorite here in this book. He's seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Yeah, he kind of repeats it. It's uh, that repetition that's pretty typical of, of both Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature, you know, that everything done under heaven, everything done under the sun. He's saying the same thing. There's no distinction between those two things. He's talking about all human work, all human activity, and he claims to have seen everything, all of this, which might be a little bit of hyperbole, but he was a king and he had plenty of time on his hands. And so we'll take him at his word that he at least thought that. And he saw everything. He saw all this human wisdom, all this human work. And he has come to understand that it is all vanity. It is all striving after the wind. It's all trying to do something that if even if you accomplish something, you really have nothing to show for it. That's what striving after the wind means. Uh, you know, even if you catch it, what do you have? You just have wind. You have nothing. You've, you've done nothing. And so that's his way of saying that that even even if all your plans go exactly as you anticipated, everything just works out perfectly, that in the end, you have nothing to show for it. You'll have nothing to show for it. And he's seen it all, and all of it is vanity. Yeah. The, the striving after the wind, I think, is a helpful thing when we keep that word of vanity you know, recurring here in this book. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about this, that the, the word hevel in Hebrew, maybe the picture that we should have in our mind is something like when it's cold outside, as it is in Uruguay right now, apparently, and you breathe out and you, you see the vapor, but then it's just gone. Mm-hmm. That, the same, same idea gone. with the striving after the wind. You, you catch it, but what have you caught? And, and that's what, what Solomon has seen. And maybe, you know, with his, his claim of, I have seen everything, you know, we like, well, you didn't see everything, Solomon. <laughs> but maybe maybe the way to understand that is he's, he's saying, look, here's, you, you try this out. Look at anything at all that you can see, and you will see the same thing that I've seen. It's kind of a test case. Yeah, we've seen things that Solomon didn't see, obviously. But if we see them all and we're honest about them, we will come to the same conclusion as Solomon. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's what he's trying that's to say. Right, because there is, as he said in the previous text, there is nothing new under the sun. And, and so right. the same things that, that we see today, as new as they might seem to us, they fit perfectly with what Solomon gives us. They too will prove to be this striving after the wind. Now, we talked a little bit about wisdom literature and and aphorisms, proverbs. Verse 15, at least as it's put in the ESV, looks to be kind of like a proverb, and it sounds like a proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What's Solomon saying? Yeah, I think it definitely is uh, an aphorism. You know, it, it is very consistent with that. It's got the parallelism and the repetition that are very characteristic of that in, in wisdom literature and Hebrew poetry. And crooked is uh, a word that we use the same way, you know, that, that we use crooked figuratively sometimes, uh, not to mean not literally straight, but to mean false or uh, perverted, perversion of justice, unjust kind of thing. And so he's not he's not necessarily talking about it literally, he's talking about it more figuratively, the way that, that we would use, you know, a crooked politician, for example. Um, 
and so uh, not saying that all politicians are crooked, saying that you know, <laughs> we do say that. We, that's a, a way that we use the word crooked. And we don't mean that this person does not stand up straight. We mean that uh, it's a perversion of what a, a politician or a public servant should be, right? And it, this could be an issue, an example of a, a substantive where using this word crooked to mean a person, it could be translated as what a, a crooked person cannot be made straight. That is an, an unjust person or a perverted person cannot be made just. Um, but I, I think that it makes more sense that it's not talking about a crooked person, but it's talking about the bad things that exist. And if we think about sin and we think about the fallen world as a, as a corruption of what God made good, I think that word crooked makes a lot of sense. You know, God made the world good, but sin has made it crooked. And by our power, we can't make it straight. So he's talking about the bad things, the, the toil, the, uh, the unhappy busyness, maybe, that he referred earlier, that there's nothing that we can do to make that straight, to make that good again, uh, even with great wisdom. And then the repetition of this, he's, he's saying the same thing in a different way. What is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, this the the only place where this word for lacking is used in the whole Old Testament. Mm. There, there's a verb that's similar to it, but uh, this this noun, this idea of going without something, the absence of something, and, and what is absent can't be counted. Uh, you can't count things that are missing uh, that you don't know are missing, right? Uh, you you can't count the good things that don't exist, is what he's saying. You know, so there there are there's a good that he can kind of think exists maybe in some sort of platonic realm of ideas, right? But it doesn't exist in the real world. And so it doesn't do you any good to try to count that that doesn't exist, these, these good things. You know, you can't make what our sin has made crooked into something good. Uh, you can't take what our sin has corrupted uh, of the gifts of God and make them right and good again. Uh, we can't do that. That is beyond our ability. That that would be a vanity. And then no amount of wisdom and knowledge and striving can make that happen. Hmm. We're going to keep looking at this text as Solomon continues to speak about the vanity of wisdom. We're going to look at it more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor James Sharp this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, August 2nd. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18 with Pastor James Sharp. He serves through the LCMS Office of International Mission as pastor, teacher, and missionary in Montevideo, Uruguay. Pastor Sharp, prior to the break, we were talking about that proverb, that aphorism Solomon has there in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. It sounds really hopeless. Why Why is there not hopelessness, despite what Solomon says there? Well, because... God can make it straight, right? He's talking about what we can do by our abilities, by by his inquisition into wisdom, by all the powers that he's applied. Uh, we can't make the crooked straight, but God can. You know, we we can't make up for what we are lacking, but God can and does, and he does that for us in Jesus Christ. So this this book, even though it can be a little overwhelming in its its negativity, maybe we would say in its honesty towards the human condition, it does point us to Christ. Ultimately, it points us to what God has done for us. And so, you know, we can say something like that. We can't make the crooked crooked straight, but God can. And he does for us in Jesus Christ. He, He makes straight, he makes right, he makes us just because he gives us the righteousness and justice of Jesus by by means of faith. So it you know we we need we always need to keep that in mind and and keep the gospel in mind as as we read whatever part of scripture but especially something like this the wisdom literature which can can get to be pretty bleak if our hope is only in our own abilities. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the very excellent examples of why the context not only of the particular verse within a book, but the place of the book within the totality of Scripture is something we always want to keep in mind, lest we read verses like this all by themselves and and get the thought that there is no hope. There There is hope. It does come through in some places of Ecclesiastes a little more clearly than others, but especially in the totality of Scripture. We, we always have to read, I mean, all of Scripture in that context, and especially right. a book like, like, like Ecclesiastes. Right. Definitely. I mean, you know, Luther said that the Bible is the book of Jesus Christ, and that that's how I must always read. What is this teaching me about Jesus, about who Jesus is, about what Jesus does for me? And when you read it in that context of the whole scriptures, and especially in the context of the gospel and, and what God is doing for us in Jesus, uh, then there is always hope in the scriptures, because the hope for us is in Jesus. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose in, in that context then, with the hope being in Jesus, what a, what a text like this does is it shows us where our hope can't be. A- right. And right now, in this text, our hope can't be in our own pursuit of human wisdom. And, right. and if that's where it's going to be, then a text like this is, is one of those texts where, where God comes along and just knocks down our idols for us, because right. he knows how how easily we put our trust in idols, so he comes along and knocks down the one that is our own wisdom. Right, which is funny, because in this te- in this verse, especially in 16, we might get a little self-idolatry here from Solomon, because this is one of the most egocentric <laughs> verses I think I've ever read in Scripture. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are in Jerusalem before me, my heart. He uses the first person, I or me or my, eight different ways in one verse. Mm. It's all, it's his own, maybe it's a, an expression of his own ego, or maybe it's just a way of really laying on how this was a product of his own work, his own self-reflection, but but he really does show that, that it, trust me, you know, I have 
wisdom. You want wisdom? I got wisdom, man. I got more wisdom than you could ever imagine. I have it all. I have more wisdom than all the kings who were in Jerusalem before me. Uh, and my heart has had this great experience of wisdom and knowledge more than anybody ever had. And what he's saying is that if there's any wisdom or knowledge available, kind of like you were saying before, you know, that sure, we see things today that Solomon had no concept of, but all of those are going to lead to the same place. No matter how much wisdom and knowledge you acquire in your context today in 2023, uh, and or however much Solomon was in the 10th century BC, that you're going to come to the same place. Hmm. So, so do you think, I mean, do you think it's, it's his ego that's talking or maybe it, could it be a confession of his? I mean, I'm, I don't know. It's, you can't, you can't hear him say it. So you don't know his tone of voice. Right. Uh, what do you, what do you think? Well, I think he probably is leaning towards the confession. Although you get into Solomon's character and you can, you can definitely yeah. see both sides. Right. But he get here, you know, he has that repetition of I, me, I, me, my, I, me, my. And you can see that as not a way of necessarily talking himself up because he's already talked himself up. I'm the king. I've been king forever. You know, I had all the wisdom. I've used all the wisdom. Uh, he says here, I have the wisdom surpassing all the kings who were over Jerusalem before me, which I think is just a way of saying I've got a lot of wisdom, right? There was only one king over Jerusalem before him, uh, his father David, right? Uh, unless we're talking about the Jebusites or something like that. I don't think he's really referring to them. I, I think he's just saying that, I look, I had an amazing amount of wisdom. God gave me this wisdom, and I used that, and I used the kingdom that God gave to me to make this inquiry, this, this systematic, intentional inquiry into wisdom and knowledge. I've got it all, man. Trust me. And it didn't work. So you get to it, and maybe it comes off as egotistical at the beginning, but what is he saying as he goes on, you know, that this was a striving after the wind, this was vanity. Hmm. Well, and so, okay, uh, on the one hand, if it is egotistical, maybe that's the way we read it, but he's not wrong either. I mean, he, he really is wiser than, than we are or that anyone sure. else is, you know, I mean, that's definitely, like, we, we hear the ego, but he's not wrong either. No, he's not wrong. I mean, he was specially gifted with this, and he was also not only gifted with that wisdom that that God gave him as as a answer to his request in First Kings three, uh, but he had time and ability to dedicate him to himself to this in a way that that most people don't. You know, he was a king, right. and he had people to you know go to the grocery store for him and do his laundry and do all the other things that, that we do in that toil, you know, that daily busyness, that sad busyness that's given to, to man. Uh, he had people do a lot of those things for him. And so he was able to dedicate himself to this study, this uh, dedicated systematic study of wisdom and knowledge in a way that, that most of us aren't, even if we went to school for a long time and everything like that. He just, he had the time to do that. And so, yeah, he was uniquely position to be able to say this. So uh, on the one hand, yeah, it can come off as egotistical. You know, we're especially, I think a lot of us are taught that you're not really supposed to talk about yourself and and you're not supposed to, you know, say I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. That's something for little kids, toddlers that we try to break them up, right? But uh, he had every reason to say that. And he's saying that not to build himself up. He has no reason to build himself up. He's already established who he was and and 
what he had going for him. Uh, he's doing it actually to get to his point. And his point is, in the end, that the pursuit of worldly wisdom, of human wisdom, is vanity. Hmm. Well, and, and so to get to that point, for the sake of those to whom he's talking and to whom he's writing, you know, like think about the way that a, a father might speak to his children and, and would emphasize, look, I did these things, I learned these things from them, and now I'm telling them to you so that you can learn them through this instruction rather than by having to go through the same experiences and make the same mistakes that I did. Right. You know, as a teacher, as a dad, as a pastor, and lots of my various vocations, you know, you want to pass that off. You know, you don't have to make the same mistakes that I did. Uh, I want you to have the, the same uh, possibilities that I had, maybe the, the things that did go well, right? And so that, that's definitely a characteristic of wisdom literature as well, you know, that, that they want to pass on this wisdom. Um, and so he, he definitely is trying to pass this on. I, I read one uh, commentator talking about how he imagined Solomon with like his, maybe his, ki his kids, his sons, some of his younger lieutenants or something, and they're like, sitting around the dinner table or something like that when old King Solomon's there and he's just like going off about how, what a waste of time, all these things he did. And that he doesn't want them to do the same dumb things that he did. Um, and you can kind of get that picture from it. I, I don't know if that's really the way that it came, came about, but you can definitely get that from it, that, that he is trying to pass this on, uh, which, which, you know, the real wisdom is understanding that, that our wisdom is nothing and that only the wisdom that comes from God is worth anything. So then in, in verse 17, he continues to, to talk about what he's done. He says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. So we, we talked a little bit about the wisdom, but here he, he keeps talking about madness and folly. What's he saying in verse 17? Yeah, he applied his heart. You know, he's doing this as, once again, the heart is the seat of reason in Semitic, not the seat of emotion. So he's very intensively, intentively applying his reason and intelligence to this, to know wisdom and also to know its opposite. It's the opposite of the reason deliberate way that Solomon was seeking to know wisdom. And this madness here might even be like a personification of madness, the same way that in other parts of Ecclesiastes and in other parts of wisdom literature, wisdom is sort of personified as, as a person and treated like this, this idea is, is a person. Um, this might actually be the same kind of idea there, but that this madness is the opposite. Madness and folly are the opposite of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, that it's, you know, he, he's repeating himself to make his point very clear that it, he, he's understood what is wise according to the world and he's understood what is crazy or foolish according to the world. Uh, and that was also a waste of time that he didn't learn anything. Uh, in the end, he goes through all these other pursuits and he realizes that they're a waste of time too, and that they come to nothing. Hmm. So it talk, I mean, just to make sure I'm following what you're saying and what Solomon is saying, when he says, I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, is the, the this in that second sentence, is that the, the application of, of his heart to find out the, the difference? Or is, I mean, what is the, what is he right. saying is the, the striving after the wind? 
right? That, that, that trying to, trying to know wisdom, trying to know folly, trying to understand things, all these, this, this too is a, a striving after wind. He uses this term, this also, or this too, uh, several times throughout Ecclesiastes. And if you think about it, the introduction that, that you did yesterday is kind of the introduction to the whole book. You know, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, right? And today he's, he's specifically talking about the pursuit of wisdom, human wisdom is vanity. And in other parts of Ecclesiastes, he will talk about other things that are also vanity. And this too is vanity. This too is striving after wind. So it's a way of connecting thematically, I guess, kind of the the sub points of his major thesis, right? He has this thesis in, in the beginning of chapter one that everything is vanity. And now this is like if he's writing a, an outline to, to do a term paper in high school, you know, this is letter A, wisdom is vanity, right? And letter B is is the next subject, and letter C is the third. And he connects these by by using this phrase, this also, that this also, I understood that this also is. You know, he he perceived this, he came to know this or realized this is what this word means. Um, so after all of his work, he realizes that it was a waste of time. So and and the work itself was a waste of time, mm-hmm. and also the the result that he got out of that work, the the end goal, both of those things. So it's I mean almost a double vanity. Yeah, it's it's in fact he says as you know as he gets into verse eighteen that he's actually worse off than he was before, right? Uh, you know, for in much wisdom is much vexation. He increases knowledge, increases sorrow. So I I spent forty years trying to be the wisest guy in the world, learn everything. I did it. And I'm much worse off than I was at the beginning. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it is a, a double whammy. All right, so take us into to verse 18 further. In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Yeah, vexation is a great word, first of all. I love the word vexation. And, and it's not maybe a word that we use in speech every day, but he's talking about frustration or grief, or it even can mean pain in Hebrew. And so he's saying with wisdom, there's just frustration. And I think most people can relate to this a little bit. Maybe uh, you think you know better than somebody else and you see them do something that you wouldn't do it that way, maybe, or that you told them not to do it that way. Parents might be able to understand this with their children or, or something like that, you know. And so knowing better does not always result in feeling better, I guess is what he's trying to say. Mm. Right. That uh, just because you have that wisdom. And I I think that it's important to understand, to go back and and talk about how wisdom here is not necessarily exactly the same. that We might think of wisdom like a a wise older person or something. Or, you know, I I always talk about uh, my pastor that I had growing up, Pastor Doomer, is the wisest man I know. And when I say that, I'm not talking about wisdom the same way that... uh, Solomon maybe is, who's talking more about uh, knowledge and investigation and being able to apply that knowledge and stuff in, in a way. And so he knows so much, and all that does is make him frustrated. And he, he has learned so much. He, you know, he set his heart to know wisdom and knowledge and to know madness and folly. And all that does is increase his sorrow, his sadness, his disappointment. You know, if you, if you think about that, you know, as a, as a teacher, as a parent, as a person that cares about other people, you want them to do well and you see them not apply the things that maybe you know and that you've told them. 
and how disappointing that can be. Uh, and then the worst is when you do it yourself, when you know better, right? And then you yourself do it anyway. Uh, that's, oh, I should have known better than that. I should have known better than to uh, try to schedule a, uh, that, you know, so many things on the first day of my kid's <laughs> winter break, for example, uh, it was probably not right. the best work I've ever done. You know, I should have known better, right? And that just makes it worse, right? Uh, that you should have known better. It's almost like we can forgive ourselves and forgive others out of ignorance. But if you know better, you know, I mean, that, isn't that what we say to our kids? You're old enough to know better, right? Uh, and so what that might not bother them, but it bothers us knowing that. Mm -hmm. And so with more more wisdom is more frustration with more knowledge is more disappointment. Hmm. Yeah. It, yesterday I, I mentioned this because we, we talked a little bit about Solomon being the, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes and also the writer of a good chunk of Proverbs, not all mm -hmm. of it. We know that some are, and, and thinking about maybe Proverbs being in his younger days and some of the wisdom that's there, you know, I wonder if a verse like this is maybe part of his reflection on that in the sense that he wrote the Proverbs, and he knows the wisdom that's there, but at the same time, you don't always see that wisdom play out in real life. So I just I just flipped open to Proverbs. This is just as one example, maybe. Proverbs 14, 12, and again, this is just where I opened in Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. I mean, that is true, but it doesn't always prove true that sometimes the way that seems right to man, the wicked prosper. And uh -huh. so I, I wonder if, if maybe, you know, and, and you could do this with just about any other of the, or a number of the Proverbs where, where, yeah, it's generally true, but not always in every specific example. And, and I wonder if that's part of the, the frustration, the vexation, the sorrow that Solomon knows is that, yeah, he knows that this is wisdom, but he doesn't always see it play out in real life, and that's part of the the struggle that he's going through here. Yeah, well, it doesn't always. You're right; it doesn't always play out, and even if it does, in the end, it still doesn't. Right? Like when I was reading this, I kept thinking of you know the poem Ozymandias. You know, behold, Ozymandias, king of kings, right? And it's it's this ruin in the desert that's been destroyed, and nothing that we do is that. And I'm sure Ozymandias or you know, some of the great kings of, of uh, Persia or Babylonia or whatever, Tiglath-Pileser III is one of my favorites to always bring up all the time. You know, those guys, king of kings, you know, they're the greatest of kings, and they thought that they had everything and that their empire would last forever. Oh, king, live forever, that kind of thing. And all of that has come to naught. So even when it does go well, in the end, it still doesn't. And I, I like what you're talking about, how Solomon, maybe the Proverbs were, were something that he wrote maybe more in his middle age and not in his old age. And so there's maybe a little more hopeful or at least just merely practical tone to them. And there's nothing wrong with that. They, they are practical. A lot of them are, they are very wise and they're not just humanly wise. They're, they're divi obviously divinely inspired. They're the word of God. Right. But it, you know, that, that in the end, this will fail in the end, you know, it, whatever we put, whatever trust we put in our wisdom and our ability and our work will come to nothing. Uh, and we know that also because it's all tainted by sin and all our works are filthy rags and we have nothing to offer to God and the wages of sin is death. And so if we trust in that, we will come to nothing but destruction. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, if I trust in my own performance of the wisdom that's laid out in Proverbs, then that my own performance of that is not going to to save me, and it's not even going to last. And again, you can do that with any number of the Proverbs, and you can see, yes, that's generally true, and, and it's good that it's there. We should listen to that wisdom, and we should seek to follow it as much as we can, because it is godly divine wisdom, as you said. But if I if I put my hope in my ability to do that, especially in a world, and this could, goes back to what you were saying earlier about the curse of sin in, involved in all of this, especially in a world that's that's broken by our sin, if we think that it's all about our performance, then we're going to be left what, vexed, living in this vexation and sorrow that Solomon's talking about here. Right. You know, the, 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 the law and our trust in the law always results in one of two things, either a false sinful pride, believing that we really are doing it, or despair, understanding that we really aren't. And so I, I think that we're seeing here a holy despair in the sense that Solomon, after all his years, has come to understand that that there's nothing that he can really do to contribute to this, that it's 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 in God and it's in God's hands. And you know, that I think that's the not only the best that we can hope for, it's the right thing to hope for, you know, that the worldly wisdom will will drive us more and more to flee to Christ and flee to his righteousness and his wisdom and his perfection and his holiness and to trust in in him. And so if it's doing that, then it really is a value. So, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about this. We've got about four, four and a half minutes here about the way to, again, reading this in the context of the fullness of Scripture, the pursuit of wisdom that Solomon's talking about here leads only to this vexation and sorrow. I mean, let, let's try to take the positive side of it. How do we, how do we, take the, you know, the godly despair, as you've talked about, and I think it's a good word, how do we take that and, and turn that toward godly pursuits, maybe? Well, I mean, we, we do it in service to our neighbor, right? That's really what we're doing. Um, it, you know, the, that godly despair that, that moves us to no longer trust in ourselves and our wisdom and our ability and our righteousness uh, moves us by the power of the Holy Spirit to trust in Christ and creates a new Adam, a new son of, of Adam, a son of the new Adam in us, who then through godly wisdom and through worldly wisdom, which is a first, which is a first article gift. It's a gift of God too, right? Uh, which is something we need to keep in mind here. We, we, we don't put our trust in, in this worldly wisdom the way that it seems like maybe Solomon was, or it can come off that way. Uh, but we give thanks to God for this wisdom and we put it into use to serve our neighbor, and we do that for our neighbor's benefit, and especially uh, to help to bring our neighbor also uh, the word of Christ that frees him from this toil, this busyness, this sad busyness of of this world, and to open to him the world to come. Hmm. I, I like the the emphasis on the service to the neighbor here. As I was, and the reason is because of the way that Solomon talks about himself and his own thing. You know. We brought up First Kings three that he prayed for wisdom, and here he's putting that wisdom to use. Which I think, you know, on, on the surface of that, that sounds like a good idea. God gives me something, and so I want to put it to to use. But I want to put it to use in the service of the neighbor, not for somehow my own ego. If that is involved in what Solomon's doing, th- then I'm going to go the wrong way. But when God gives me a gift, put it in service to Him and to the service of the neighbor, and that is a, a God pleasing thing to do. That doesn't lead to to vexation or sorrow in the end, it, it leads to, to what God has given. 
right? He's he's not trying to build himself up. He didn't need to, right? He's the king. He's the great king in Jerusalem. He has everything, Solomon, all his splendor sort of thing, right? Um, so he didn't need to do that. And he was given this wisdom to serve his people, and he did. Uh, he made a lot of very poor decisions over the years, too, as well. I mean, if we, we want to read First Kings, you know, or it, it, it wasn't all smiles and sunshine, no matter how wise he might have been. Uh, but he kind of got sidetracked, maybe, and, and we see that also in the narrative in First Kings, you know, that he's, he, he did investigate everything, and he investigated everything. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think some of the commentators, Luther talked about this a lot, uh, Concordia Commentary had a great uh, line about this, you know, that he kind of got lost in worldly wisdom. And he is coming here towards the end of his life, and he's realizing he didn't find any comfort in that worldly wisdom. He didn't find anything of value in that worldly wisdom. Um, but the Holy Spirit comes to us and through the means of grace, gives us a wisdom that doesn't seek the world, but trusts in Christ and a wisdom that does not lead us to sorrow and vexation and pain and disappointment, but a wisdom, uh, the holy wisdom of God that is Jesus Christ, that gives us hope for eternal life. Absolutely. And I think that that's a, a great way to, to put this text together and to see how this text points us to Christ, to know that Christ is the wisdom of God for us, and for our salvation. And so when human wisdom fails us and the pursuit of that wisdom fails us and we see only the vexation and sorrow, then we turn to Christ, who is the wisdom of God for us and for our salvation. Pastor James Sharp serves through the LCMS Office of International Mission. He is pastor, teacher, and missionary in Montevideo, Uruguay. He's been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Pastor Sharp, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Ecclesiastes, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.